Welcome to the Liberty Block. I'm Elliot Axelman with our co-host Steve, and we're joined today by State Representative in New Hampshire, Jose Camriles. Jose, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, sir. So now that the session is over, the legislative session in New Hampshire, we're in the summer break now, we're going to try to have a bunch of these interviews with mostly the really good state reps like Jose, but maybe some other less good state reps, and ask them about their session, what they thought going into it, what they accomplished, what they didn't accomplish, what they hope to accomplish next time. So Jose, you are a first-time state rep, right? That's correct. All right. So you ran, what what was it that caused you to run? Was there any one big thing? Was it corona fascism or was it a bunch of issues? What were the main issues that, that caused you to run for state rep last year? Well, I had run in 2018 because uh, I'm, I retired early uh, in my career. I retired at age 55. And this country and this state in particular has been so great to me that I wanted to give something back to the community. So I started by running in 2018. And from there, things just heated up, as you stated. I was just totally disgusted and frustrated with with uh, what was happening uh, in in this country, uh, with the the way the Democrats were trying to shut us down with their socialist policies, and uh, so I ran a good hard fight here in uh, Canterbury Loudon, and I was able to beat a a, a pretty tough opponent, and uh, that was that's it. That's that's what motivated me was do something good for this state. Great. And you represent Canterbury and Loudoun? That is correct. And that's Merrimack County. And what's the district number? It's Merrimack County District 9. 9. Great. Yes. Great. All right. So what are your first thoughts of now that your first session is over? What are your thoughts about the, the good and the bad of the session? Well, obviously, this was unprecedented. This, this session was crazy because there was nothing normal or standard about it. You know, right from day one, we were meeting in a parking lot in the UNH campus and we we're voting from our vehicles with click with hand clickers instead of sitting in the appropriate place where we should have been, which was the state house. Uh, but things, as crazy as things were this year, I was just amazed at what we were able to accomplish. Um, we really stuck together. I'm part of the, as you probably know, I'm part of the Freedom Caucus, which is a caucus within the Republican caucus. It's about 72 of us. And we set off some lofty goals to have a lot of the platform issues put into bills. And uh, some of those bills were stripped out later, but then we were able to attach them to the House Bill 2, as you know, which was the uh, the budget bill. And we held the our Republicans uh, in the House, the Senate, and the governor, we held their feet to the fire right up to the last minute because we were not going to pass the budget bill unless they left those bills that we attached on it. So uh, it was, to me, it was an incredible uh, victory a small bunch of people that grouped together our, our freedom caucus, and we were able to make a big difference. Excellent. What were some bills or some policies in particular that you're proud and happy did pass or got put into HB2, the budget? Well, obviously, historically, the uh, anti-abortion bill, that, that was something I didn't even dream we would be able It wasn't even on the radar at the beginning of the year. And to be able to have passed that after the state has tried for 40 years to, to have some semblance of protection for the unborn, that was incredible. Then school choice, that was another incredible thing that we passed that I think is going to have huge ramifications down the line. Uh, the anti-CRT language that we were able uh, to, to put in there was another thing. And then my favorite topic, of course, we cut something like 40 different taxes. Uh, and that was, to me, that's what it's all about. It's cutting taxes, eliminating taxes. And more importantly, we didn't pass, we didn't allow any bills to come through that were increasing taxes. For the most, at least I know on my committee, we did not allow a single bill 
that uh, would have increased taxes or fees. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. And then we're to, oh, and Second Amendment. I can't even begin to tell you the things we did with Second Amendment. Uh, for example, one of the stupid things that we've had for so many years here in New Hampshire, you were allowed to carry a loaded weapon in your automobile, but you were not allowed to carry a loaded weapon on your snowmobile. And that left a very ugly loophole for fish and game to pick and choose people that they wanted to pick on, and they could confiscate their vehicles, their weapons, give them fines. And so we eliminated that. And uh, that was, again, another major accomplishment. That was signed into law, that bill? Yes, it was. Great, great. Okay, I might, I might have forgotten. Me, I'm to find me, it I don't know. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. We passed it. And I believe, I don't know if the governor had signed it yet, so I will uh, have to reserve it until I can confirm. But I see no reason why he wouldn't sign it. Okay, so you mentioned a lot of things that almost make me an optimist because th there were a lot of really good things in the budget, obviously, like you said. Yes. Um, SB 154, I got optimistic about, and the Senate made me optimistic about it. And then it was poisoned with some amendments, and then it was killed. Do you know, I guess, can you give any assurance that the same thing won't happen next session? Because someone will propose a good bill next session to nullify federal gun laws, and someone, I don't know who or why, but someone will poison it with some weird language that either poisons it or makes people doubt whether it became a bad bill. So are you confident that we can have a good, clean bill nullifying some federal gun laws next session? Uh, yeah, just to confirm, SB 154 was the gun line bill that we... Oh, that was the, to nullify federal oh. gun laws or federal executive orders. Oh, yes, yes. Um, uh, well, I'm confident that uh, we showed the governor that we're, we're going to really push, especially, the, again, the Freedom Caucus. I'm confident because since we have such a small majority in the House, the Freedom Caucus has stood tall and strong, and we, we told them one of the conditions of passing the budget bill, we were, again, we were uh, negotiating with the governor right up until midnight, Wednesday night, and the Senate. One of the, the key things we told them was that we are going to, you, you promised us we're going to make it stronger. If not, we're going to make it ugly for you. We have in writing the governor stating, we got him in writing stating that he would uh, work with us in the next session. And what we're going to do is take some of the retained bills and we're going to add amendments to them to strengthen the things that we kind of, okay, we compromise slightly to get the House budget through. Uh, no, we already have them lined up. We have uh, uh, certain bills that we're going to add amendments to strengthen the anti-CRT stuff, to strengthen Second Amendment, to uh, reduce the powers that the governor has, the emergency powers, because we weren't satisfied with what we have. We need to re further reduce those emergency powers. So, no, I'm very confident. Uh, they took us seriously. You know, they played a game of chicken with us right up until the last minute, and we didn't flinch. And then we gave them what they wanted on that Thursday meeting, and now they owe us. They need to do uh, what the people have asked us to do. So. Steve, you had a question? I just wanted to make sure listeners knew what the bill was that you were referring to. Which bill? The, the SB 154. Right. right. So you explained it, so that's fine. Okay, yeah, I don't even want to get into the drama of the, the gun line in this state. Yeah. Are, you, are you recording right now or? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, you can edit, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of drama. Um, and obviously a lot of people hate each other with, with the state and federal gun line. And I bounce back and forth between the state, whether the state or feds should handle it. Um, yeah. Or I believe in, in no government controlling gun laws at all. That was probably the most controversial bill amongst ourselves that we had. And we got a lot of information and misinformation and then more information. And in the end, you know, I personally, I'll tell you, because I'm not afraid to say what my record is. I voted to eliminate the the state police having to do the check. 
because I felt, gee, we're already doing two checks and the feds are going to have to do the check anyway. And again, it wasn't a black and white. It was, I had to do a lot of soul searching. And in the end, I came up with, well, I have personally been affected and I've had friends personally affected by delays in getting handguns because of the state and that's uh, of the state police having to intervene. And that's why I voted uh, to eliminate that. Uh, and again, it was very, uh, it was it was pretty much 50-50 amongst the Republicans, but in the end, we came together and we made the agreement to eliminate the, uh, the state police. Okay, for those of us not as familiar with this bill, as much as you're comfortable, could you share with us what was controversial about it and what, if anything, surprised you in opposition to it? I think that what some people felt, some of the legislators felt, was that that we would be giving somehow total control to the feds and that then Biden would do something by which he could change what the feds are doing on their end. And then that would really, really restrict our ability to get get the clearances. I just didn't see that. As as the feds are already involved, and I I believe if he was going to do anything, it would have been one of the things that he did on day one. So that's why I opted to, instead of have two checks, I opted to have one check. But again, it wasn't black and white. There was much, much debate. In the end, I have to say, uh, John Burke is the guy that I look up to within the House when it comes to Second Amendment issues. And John convinced me to, that that was the right thing to do. And, and, there, so, and that confirmed it for me because I was leaning that way anyway. Yeah, it was pretty much state versus local control, state versus federal. And I always err on the side of state as opposed to federal control. Yeah. However, in this instance, it was literally a redundant middleman which caused more delays. So let, so that's why John Burke and a lot of others who support gun rights wanted to eliminate the middleman, which did cause some delays. But I, I see both sides. I hate giving federal government, especially Biden administration, more control as opposed to the state. But it, yeah, that was a difficult issue. So other than that and the state of emergency reforms, which we can get to later, you know, how I feel about the state of emergency reforms, was anything else disappointing that we did, didn't get done this session? Uh, obviously, yes. The big one was right to work. That one we had, we should have had. It was right in our back pocket. And then, unfortunately, you know, some of the typical, and I'll call them rhinos, I'll call them for what they are, uh, they raised their heads and we lost it by something like 13 votes. Don't quote me on that, but it was a very, it was a very close vote. But that was disappointing. But, you know, at the end of the day, the other things that we did get so far supersede that. Uh, and right to work, we'll be back again in two years. We'll bring it back up again when, and we'll have an even bigger majority, I believe, in 2022. So that'll be, I think 2022 will be the year for right to work. Um, the other disappointments were there were a few occasions when our leadership uh, would just allow the the Democrats to get away with a lot of nonsense. As you know, we were not meeting in the House. We were meeting in the uh, Bedford Sportsplex down there, which is basically an indoor uh, arena. It's like three football fields long. And because of the environment, they got away with a lot of shenanigans, uh, one of which was they they did like the Texas Democrats did. They walked out the door on one of the sessions. And had that been in the state house, you know, the doors would have been locked and that kind of nonsense wouldn't have happened. But I believe that they were taking some liberties with our speaker. Uh, also, you know, they would get rambunctious when they would win something. And the speaker would, you know, calmly tell them to keep the house in order. But when we would get rambunctious, we would be yelled at. So it, it was kind of a weird environment. And it, I, I, I felt that, what I felt bad about was that there was no, there was a lack of decorum that we would have had inside of the house. And that's one of the things that I regret in my first year that I didn't get to experience that the, the whole, the real house effect and the, and the decorum and, and the proper 
attitudes that would have would have taken place had we been in, in the proper setting. One of the things that I think John Burt mentioned on Facebook when this session started and it was clear that we were going to be meeting in not in the house in a sports complex of some sort without people being able to be there. So, you know, in the past, every year until last year, citizens were able to go to the house and walk freely and watch all the sessions and everything. There was, there was nothing that I knew of that was a secret. Um, and then with a sports complex, they made it clear that it was going to be not in the house, but also that citizens would not be allowed in because of COVID, everyone will die if anyone else comes in. Um, so John Burke said that it's unconstitutional because according to the New Hampshire Constitution, people are supposed to be allowed in the people's house. And therefore he was going to vote no on everything for the whole session until they got back in the house. So that was a very interesting uh, theory, and he's probably correct, and I probably agree with him. Well, uh, not only do I agree agree with him, we had obvious violations of our Constitution throughout the year under the guise of COVID. I mean, there were many violations of our Constitution. Uh, so that shouldn't be a surprise that, that they did this. Now, I have to give credit to the Republican leadership. This was a very, very difficult situation because of the circumstances and the fact that they were able to pull it off because quite frankly, I didn't think I didn't know how it was going to work doing this inside of an arena. Despite everything that was, you know, that happened, we were able to pull this off and then not only pull it off, but have an incredible session. And one of the greatest uh, and socially conservative sessions that we've we've ever had in the state. Uh, so, yes, there were a lot of things that were done. The Zoom meetings, we were doing Zoom meetings. That was probably unconstitutional. But yet that's what was done. And. The one thing that we were making sure all the, the way, and I, and I give leadership credit here, is that we were making them sure that it was not going to happen again, and it was not going to continue forever. And we slowly but surely started taking back some of the turf by, as soon as we were able to, eliminating Zoom meeting provision. And, uh, and we said that this last meeting when we passed the House bill, that was going to be the last meeting of the sport complex. From now on, we're meeting in the House. And in fact, we started meeting in the House our last uh, three Republican caucuses were in the House. So we're setting precedent. And if the Democrats don't want to show up because they're still afraid of COVID come September, hey, that's going to be great because guess what? We're going to pass a heck of a lot more bills than we thought we were going to be able to pass. So I welcome them being afraid of COVID because it's just going to make it easier for us. Excellent. And which committee are you on again? I am on science, technology, and energy. Great. And was that the committee you wanted? Yes, it was. I was solicited to be there because of my engineering background. And uh, <clears throat> once I uh, checked into it, it was exactly the committee I wanted to be on. Obviously, I have a lot of other big interests that, that I, I, I could have been on several other committees that would have been of interest to me. But uh, in the end, I, I think I served a, a good purpose being on science, technology and energy, because every single one of the bills that was brought forth by the Democratic side was to increase subsidies for uh, renewable energy, increased fees. There wasn't, there wasn't an increase that they didn't love. Everything was about increases and putting penalties on people uh, for not going the, uh, for example, for electric vehicles. They wanted to penalize car dealerships for not carrying electric vehicles. It's like, is this a communist state? You know what, or what? They so, also want to tax electric vehicles. I think last year I wrote an article about how they want to tax electric vehicles as well. Of course, because as you know, they're so cheap already, so they can add a tax on it. So anyway, in short, we we killed every. I was very proud. We killed every single one of their bills. Uh, and again, if they had merit, we worked with them. There were a couple of bills that, if they had merit, we worked with them. And but I'm happy to say that we killed every single one of the bills that were all slated to. It, we would have tripled our uh, our electrical bills if we had passed uh, the uh, the bills that they wanted to. So um, we have a very strong committee. We have very intelligent people on our committee. 
And uh, we had a, a great chairman and uh, Chairman Boat, uh, who was elected in the special election at Epping. Uh, he's a wonderful chairman, and he was able to keep he kept law and order and with uh, with grace. He was a very he was a gentleman the whole time. Uh, the entire session we met in person over at the LOB, the uh, Legislative Office Building, and not once did a Democrat show up. They only met through uh, through Zoom. Very interesting. Did you sponsor any bills yourself in your first session? Yes, I did. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> um, I have a, uh, an issue that's near and dear to my heart, literally. Uh, there was a federal policy that was passed just this March 15th of 2021, whereby the way, the manner in which deceased donor organs are distributed was radically changed. In the past, New Hampshire had a, had a system whereby it was a regional system of giving whereby the donor organs from deceased donors would go in the concentric circles out from the donor hospital. So that meant that whichever, the, the best match, matching uh, recipient closest to the hospital would receive those organs. So naturally, most of those organs would stay right in New Hampshire. As of March 15th, they've increased the zone to 250 nautical miles, which means that our organs that here that are being donated by our New Hampshire citizens are going immediately to New York City Philadelphia, Newark, New Jersey. And so all of our people that are on our waiting list for organs who were told that they would have three to five years, which is long enough to wait, are now being told 10 years, 12 years, you're probably never going to live long enough to receive an organ. So I uh, sponsored House Bill 583, which is meant to make one simple change. When our uh, people sign up for organ donation via the, registry, the motor vehicle registry, when they get their licenses, we are going to add an additional line that says, if my organs are to be donated, I would like them to go to New Hampshire first. So it'll just be one simple addition. Uh, they won't have to change the licenses at all because the uh, motor vehicle registry keeps what is in essence a small will, if you if you will. It's a small will that states that, yeah, you are, you are willing to donate your organs when, you, when you're deceased in a car accident. But now it will add an additional line that will allow for New Hampshire first. And again, we have a history of being New Hampshire first. So uh, I thought, uh, and we have a history of having a neighbor helping neighbor here in the state. And so this is a very important bill, in, in my opinion. I know that I personally, uh, I just received a life-saving uh, kidney transplant in February of 2020. If I had not received that transplant and I had now were waiting under these new conditions, I would have zero hope of receiving a deceased donor organ. So this became uh, an issue that was, again, very, very near to me. I wanted to give back, pay it forward, and I want to help our people that are on the transplant list. Did your bill pass? It was retained by the, uh, by the, House, by the House Committee, 21 to 0, because it was taken up in late February. And the federal policy had not passed yet. And I had spoken on it, and I told them, it's coming, it's coming, it's going to happen. They wanted, they wanted to reserve judgment and wait to see if, indeed, the federal policy passed. So, in a way, it was good for me that it was retained because not only did the policy pass, as I warned them that it would, now we have data. I've, I've been talking to the doctors at the donor hospitals, and they've been telling me that since that went into effect on March 15th, they have not received a single organ offer because they're all going out of state. And so by the time they take this up again in September, uh, I believe we will have enough data, six months worth of data, to show them we're getting virtually zero, if not zero, organs. And it has, this is devastating our people here 
and we, it'll make the case stronger. I have bipartisan support on the bill. In fact, I have one of my colleagues on the Democratic side that is right now waiting. I won't mention his name for privacy, but he's waiting for a kidney donation. He needs a kidney right now. Uh, so I believe I will have bipartisan support. I have senators supporting it. And I believe even Governor Sununu is a big supporter of uh, the organ uh, donation plan. And I don't think he's aware right now, uh, quite frankly, that uh, what has happened to our state. And, you know, eventually it's going to come down to the issue, which you're very familiar with, collectivism versus individualism. And I'm reading another Ayn Rand book, and it's a theme throughout her books of collectivism versus individualism. In this case, it's collectivism in the case of we are, we're one America, we're one country, we're one state, we're one nation. We're all together. We're just one big blob with zero borders internally versus me. You know how I feel. I'm one of the biggest secession activists in the world. And I think New Hampshire should be an independent state. And ultimately, it's going to come down to that. And that's, you know, that's the issue. A lot of people in D.C. and New York believe we're all one country and we all have to help with the common good and all that. As, and, you know, if some people in New Hampshire die because technically people in New York might be sicker as far as kidney failure, then who cares if some people in New Hampshire die because we're one collective country. Exactly. And to me, it's nothing more than uh, or nothing less than, we, we, as you know, their, their policies now are for wealth redistribution. Now they're literally redistributing our organs. There's nothing they won't touch. And I'm very much against this. Again, it's not a matter of not wanting to help somebody in New York, Philadelphia. The issue there is New York and Philadelphia need to do better programs for organ donation. See, we are a donor state. New Hampshire does a very good job of signing people up when they register their vehicles to become donors. Philadelphia, uh, New York and New Jersey they do horrible jobs of uh, given their populations. So all they need to do to make their circumstances better is to sign more people up in their respective states, not come pick a little New Hampshire. Again, this policy only affects states like New Hampshire, Vermont, and the little states, because if you're in California, 250 mile radius, you're still in the state, it doesn't mean anything. But when you're in New England, 250 mile radius, just you just you sharp all of Maine, all of Vermont, and all of, and all of New Hampshire, and everything's going to go to the big states. You know, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey. That's an interesting point. It's an interesting factor that that I hadn't even thought about whether New Hampshire has a better job, a better rate of signing people up to be an organ donor. Um, I myself, a lot of others, a lot of my friends are organ donors, of course. Although there are religious issues, very religious um, Jews or maybe Christians or Muslims would not, because they believe that they have to be buried whole with all of their organs. Um, but another factor is. The distance, I think you mentioned this when we spoke about the bill a year ago, you're jogging my memory. If, if someone were to have an organ donation, if someone passes away at CMC and they go to Elliott a few minutes down the road from like West Manchester to East Manchester, that's five minutes where the organ's on ice, meaning does it have better rates of taking as opposed to driving four hours to New York City, even if the organ's on ice? Absolutely. Every second, literally every second counts. And that's the problem now is that the time that's being spent on ice, they try to have it be no more than four hours. And now it's going up to 12 hours, 24 hours. And their argument would, will be that, well, we have better methods of maintaining them cool and transporting them, but that doesn't cut it. The organs start to die off after, or start to lose their functionality or viability after 24 hours. And the bottom line is it, it, it doesn't make it any better. More hours means less chance, less probability of having a good organ and having it take. So all they're doing is... Uh, reducing uh, the taking a good organ from somebody and losing some of its effectiveness if not losing it altogether so and again this it wouldn't be an issue if the uh the other states had the same kind of programs that we have uh, as effective programs in recruiting people to sign up for organ donation just want to comment um first of all on the jewish issue 
the organ donation issue of after death is very different than live donations. And surprisingly, in the very, very orthodox world, kidney donations are a big deal today. And there are actually organizations facilitating them like crazy. Uh, members of our family have been involved in them peripherally. So it's actually been a, I call it almost a sea change that people are donating kidneys like crazy. So that actually has changed. It's not the same issue as heart donations and death. I'm curious, did some of the opponents of this bill say we're afraid of retaliation from other states? The only opponent that spoke against the, when we introduced the bill, was UNOS, which is the, um, the organization that actually changed, that is responsible for the distribution of the organs uh, because they have their political interests. They were the only ones that opposed it. I have not heard one person oppose it, even all, all my Democratic colleagues, and I've had Democratic constituents all in favor of what we were proposing. Did you send a lobbyist? A lobbyist? They, they had uh, a, a representative from UNOS uh, come on to, via Zoom, speak when we had the um, introduction of the bill, and that's why it ended up being retained. But they were the only ones that spoke against the bill. And... Um, and they really have no um, no justification for it. There's really no justification. You know, this kind of leads me, this leads me to another question that I have that I, I think I want to remember to ask everyone who we can interview. There's 49 other states. Do other states have similar laws to the ones that you proposed? We would be, once again, New Hampshire. New Hampshire first. This would be the first in the nation law. And again, other states don't necessarily need it. It's just the small states that are going to get sucked up by this 250-mile radius. So, you know, like California is not going to worry about it. Florida is not going to worry about it. It doesn't affect them. Texas is certainly not going to worry about it. But only a small state like New Hampshire is affected by it. Uh, Rhode Island, Delaware. If, again, though anybody that's, that's a small state that, that can be encompassed by that 250-mile radius, those are the ones. So my expectation is that after we pass it, you're going to see Vermont, Maine, Rhode Island, even even Massachusetts might, might pass it to, again, to just protect the good work that they're doing. Uh, Massachusetts is another donor state, so I would expect that they would follow us pretty quickly. So one of the things I'm actually interested in, and I'm not a state legislator, um, and I'm definitely not one who's paid what you guys are paid. I'm, I live in a state where legislators are paid handsomely, shall we say. <laughs> but I'm always curious about how much interaction there is between legislators of various states that have common interests, how they can support each other in various ways, um, with education, with information, with tactics, strategies, et cetera. So that's just something I'm always curious about. Um, I can't speak for anybody else, obviously, but I, I know that uh, personally, I have reached out already to a state uh, legislator in Vermont. It just so happens that he is the son of the woman who donated me the kidney. So. And so that was, it ended up being an incredible coincidence. And he's a Democrat, he's on the other side, but uh, I reached out to him and let him know my legislation and warned him about what's gonna happen to his state. And um, uh, I believe that I hope that once we pass it here, he will take it up and he will make it happen in Vermont. So yes, we do reach across uh, to um, other states. This is my only personal experience of having done it. And I'm sure some of my colleagues do it with some other legislators, but I couldn't speak on it because I don't, I don't know for sure, you know, but any of the details. Okay, I have a, a general question. I guess if I were to join Congress, I would have a sort of expectation or hope that things will happen a certain way, procedurally, functionally. And I'm curious how the reality of the way it functions 
got along with the way you thought or hoped it would? Did you find that there were more roadblocks? Did you find that things didn't move or things pretty much worked well? I found that it moves, uh, surprisingly, according to the rules and the regulations uh, the, the, uh, the, and the proper etiquette. Again, it was a little more difficult where we were in a sports arena, but I was very pleased to see that, you know, every motion, every, everything is done properly. People are recognized properly or people are told to sit down when they're, when they're not recognized. Um, the, the whole process of putting forth a bill it's just like the learn member in the old Saturday morning cartoons, how a bill becomes a law, you know, surprisingly, it was all exactly just like that. So I was very pleased to see that it's a good system. It's, it, I think that that's what makes America different. We have a very good system. It is, as they say, like making sausage, okay, because there's a lot of hurdles, for example, to get a bill to become law. Um, but I think there should be. I don't, I don't think law should be made frivolously. So I, I found it to be exactly what I had learned that it would be like and i and i and i was pleased to see that it was no, I, i'm kind of curious um i believe you said you have an engineering background yes i'm an in, uh, industrial engineer it kind of hit me that you answered that question the way i would expect an engineer to answer it in terms of systems and function absolutely i i was glad that there was a a process a standard operating procedure if you will and and it works and it works quite well and uh and, and again, when we're in the house, people respect it. It's very, very well respected. And, and that's why um, I can't wait to get back into the house full time because people behave totally differently when they're there. And, uh, um, but uh, no, I'm, I'm very pleased with, with how things were done, how, how you make motions on the floor, how you make parliamentary inquiries. Um, you, you know, for an outsider looking in, it, it might look kind of like, oh, this is just a bunch of, like games why are they do it's like almost like you're playing mother may i but it it's it serves a purpose the way you go about even standing up when you approach the speaker you never walk in front of the speaker you always approach from the side there, there are a lot of uh what people might consider you know pomp and circumstance or, or frivolities but, but it, it all works to keep everything in order and to, and to have a good a good lawmaking process it's fascinating and enlightening response, which I have to digest and I really thank you for. So I may have asked this before, were there any issues opposed by people supposedly on your side of the aisle that surprised you that they would oppose or slow walk? I mean, just for example, states of emergency, but any other issue that you're like, I can't believe people are opposing me on this. Um, the vaccine passport. You know, we want that's one thing that there are some on our side that um, were all about the vaccine and they couldn't wait to get their vaccine. I personally did not take it and I will never take it. Um, I, I had zero immunity when I got my kidney transplant uh, for a full year and I never uh, even considered the vaccine and I never wore a mask because I, I have faith in my Lord and Savior and I felt that I would be protected. And and so a vaccine passport was one thing that I was a little bit surprised at because it's just so Again, Gestapo like show you know show us your papers, uh, and I couldn't believe that some of them were in support of that. Come on, they would never come door to door. They would never put numbers on our okay. arms. That's conspiracy stuff. That wouldn't happen here. Yeah, right. My my question is, how are they going to come door to door if they're already not supposed to know who's been vaccinated? How they, what are they going to just go to every door and ask? Uh, obviously, they have a database, and that really bothers me. That they're going to be coming door to door because they have a database and they know full well who hasn't been vaccinated. 
Well, also, if they believe that if any two humans interact, everyone's going to die, why would they create more interactions by coming to my door? Because there's, they've been saying for a year and a half, and now they're saying it even more so with the Delta variant, that we should not gather. So you might have thought the First Amendment protected our right to like free speech and assembly and praying. Nope, you were wrong. That, Excuse me, I'm going to have to correct you on that. I did read the Constitution just before this interview, and it actually says peaceful assembly, free speech only if you're on the left side of the aisle. I think you okay. missed that clause that was in there. So I must it have skipped painted, it, it was painted on the barn just last night, as we say. Jose, can I ask you a slightly more personal question? Have yes. you always lived in New Hampshire? No, I was born in Cuba. Okay. And, and I, uh, I was five and a half years old before my family was able to escape from Cuba. And uh, we thankfully had a, an uncle who sponsored us, who lived in, all, of all places, Boston, Massachusetts. So in 1965, we were able to escape, come to Boston. I uh, went to the Boston public school system, learned how to speak English. It was the first thing I had to do. And um, I had a great education in, uh, in Massachusetts. I, uh, I was the first in my family to attend college. As you know, I became an engineer and I, uh, I worked in the, engine, uh, in the electronics industry for 28 years. And I was able to retire as early at age 55. As I said, I worked for BAE Systems for my last 28 years. And um, I moved to New Hampshire in 1987, and I never looked back. Uh, I, I, so I escaped from two communist places, Cuba and Massachusetts. And once how, did, I, how did you escape, if I can ask? Well, we escaped in the sense that we knew that Castro was only going to get worse and worse and worse. My father, see, a lot of people thought Castro was going to be a savior, and he be, ended up becoming the devil. And um, my father knew that it was time to get out of Dodge. And we were able to get a sponsorship through my uncle who lived in Boston, Massachusetts. And back then you could. But by 1967, Castro closed down the border. He wasn't allowing anybody to leave the country because the country was siphoning off. There was going to be no, there were not going to be any people left on there. Uh, so we were able to, I say escape is we were able to get out early because then. So before he locked you in. Before he locked in everybody. Gotcha. And again, there wasn't, there wasn't another mass exodus out of Cuba until the flotilla That's that okay. happened under Jimmy Carter. And that was a total, uh, a, a, just, that was a total, just unbelievable, crazy thing that Carter allowed to happen. Because what Castro did is he emptied his jails. He sent out all his criminals, all of his insane people from the insane asylums, uh, for the most part. I mean, there were some good people mixed in there. But 80% of the people that came over the flotilla was the people that he didn't want on his island. And it was a big mistake for the U.S. to take in those people at the time. So I always say escape because we got out before he closed down the ability to get out of Cuba. Well, I got it. You're sounding um, dangerously like the uh, president of the United States that may have lost the last election, calling all Mexicans certain things. So I just want to be careful. We did not say that they were all bad people. No. Uh, As you heard me say, about 20% of those were mixed in because that's how you infiltrate. You, so, mix, you mix in a little, you, you give somebody a pound of garbage with a little bit of sugar, and that's how you, you put it in. I will not I will not defend people that are criminals. I don't care if they were my people from Cuba, these particular people that came. But as you know, that was the height of the cocaine uh, wars down in Miami. Uh, you've seen Scarface. I mean, that was reality. That, uh, a lot of the drug dealers and the uh, and insane and, and the criminals came over in that flotilla. So I'll call it what it is. You know? That was sent by Castro by design? Yes, because uh, Carter allowed the, um, uh, with open arms, we're going to allow refugees. So Castro said, sure, I'll give you some refugees. And he cleaned out his jail. And any Cuban that lives in Florida that had been previously escaped will tell you that. And now, again, with some exceptions, because some good people did come across. But um, 
just take a look at the crime rate in Miami and in Florida after, immediately after that happened. It was incredible. My so understanding is, yeah. sorry, when, when you left, it was already communist Cuba. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, see, what happened was my dad had moved from Spain. My, all my family is from Valencia, Spain. And my dad had moved to Cuba because Cuba was, believe it or not, the land of opportunity in the late in the 50s. So my dad started a watchmaking company in Cuba and we were doing quite well. And we had our own house. We had property. Everything was great. But then when Castro took over in 59, I was believe, New Year's Eve 59, things started immediately to go downhill. And so my dad hung on for a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Hey, maybe things will get better. Maybe things will get better. Everything kept getting worse. So by 65, when we left, Castro had already been in power for six years. And uh, and it was un, un, unbearable then. At that point, uh, we were informed that the government owned, well, they say the people owned, but it was never the people. It was the elite communist government. They took over my dad's business. They took over our house. So they could literally knock on the door any day and say, um, by the way, you need to move out because comrade so-and-so is going to be moving in. So we left before they did that. But the moment that we left, our house was taken over by communist, uh, elitist communist people that were in the party. We couldn't even kill our own chickens. The government took over everything, including your farm animals. So you were not allowed. That became one of the resources for all the people, quote unquote. And uh, people that killed some of their farm animals to try to feed their families were put in jail back then. So my understanding is that the current administration has said they're going to prosecute Anyone who tries to help Cubans come over by boat, I, I believe that's what's going on. I would assume you have some strong feelings about that. I mean, what can I say, right? If you can choose, they, the Democrat Party is about picking winners and losers, right? And whatever, whatever is better for them. So it's okay to let millions of Hondurans and Guatemalans and Mexicans come over illegally. But now people who are truly oppressed, uh, who are likely to vote Republican if they ever get here and become citizens, they don't want those people here, you know? Uh, so it's it's not surprising at all. And and the other thing is, they they realize that it hurts the communist regime down there if people are allowed to leave because it shows the regime for what it is. So they're all too willing to help that regime maintain a facade that things are good down there. So, Do you have family members still there? No, thankfully, as I stated earlier, because my family roots were from Spain, my immediate family <clears throat> was the only family that was in Cuba. So when we got out. We took everybody with us. We did. We do have friends that are still there. Some people, uh, people that um, like my uh, uh, godmother, she's still there. Uh, so we had a lot of friends that were still there. Many, I'm happy to say, were able to get out in later years. It, when you would have those few periods when things were relaxed, we were able to sponsor people. Were able, other friends and family were able to sponsor them and get them out. Uh, so I, I don't have as much of a vested interest in Cuba, but I, like I said, I have a place in my heart for them. I remember Cuba I, as a as a young as a small kid, and one day I would like to return and be able to go to a democratic country and a free country again, and uh, and be able to maybe go back to where I was born and see my house and and it was a, it was a beautiful place, a beautiful island. So you don't know anyone who'd be willing to open negotiations on trading, let's say, a few members of the squad for some other people. I, I'll volunteer to be. I'll broker that deal. You know, it's. Again, there's they're so ignorant, you know, they're here telling people. And I just the other day, Black Lives Matter came out and said that it was the United States fault that this protest that just happened is occurring now just because of what the U.S. has done in U.S. policy. No, these people have been angry and starving for 60 years. This has been 60 years in the making. 
And quite frankly, the only reason I, I've kind of felt in April when they when they put in the new president, uh, I knew that, hey, the Castro mystique is done. It's over. And now is the time people will rise up because there was this kind of mystique around the Castro. It kept everybody in line, kept everybody in order. But that's not the case with this new president. And it's only taken four. He was installed in April. And here we are in July. We already have uprisings. And I expect it's just going to get bigger and bigger. The protests are going to get bigger. And uh, and I, this could be it. This could finally be the point at which we have another revolution in Cuba, but this one for democracy. Wow. Um, so that's what caused, was there any particular catalyst that caused people to protest the last few weeks? Or, or was it the new installation of the new president? I think it's that they're feeling that, that they can get away with it, with this new president. I think that, quite frankly, um, I mean, the, the reasons are the same reasons they, that they've had for 60 years, is that the food is non-existent, uh, services are non-existent, medical uh, is free, but you can't get it. So it's great to say that something is free when it's not available. Um, the school system is nothing but indoctrination to the, the communist way. There are all the children are made to wear the little red flag in their uniforms, and it's all indoctrination, just like it would be in communist China. So there's really nothing there. And at this point, they have nothing to lose. Because, so, and I believe that the other catalyst is that despite the communist uh, regime trying to, trying to suppress it, these days with the technology and the Facebook and the Twitter, uh, there, there's really uh, communication. To me, the revolution was always going to come when communication was going to be uh, 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 able again. And now that you have this, before people would do it in secret, you know, meeting in basements. Well, now you can communicate electronically. I believe that the catalysts are communication, the fact that people have been fed up for 60 years, and then that in combination with the fact that the cash flows are not there anymore. Uh, if, if not now, never. This is what I think the people are thinking. All right, so we have to wrap up in a minute, but anything else that we didn't touch upon that you want to uh, say about your first session or anything else that you want to say to all of our viewers in New Hampshire and beyond? Yeah, so all I want to say is that, again, please appreciate the fact that what we accomplished this first session, I, I, I had lofty goals. I had no idea that we were going to be able to accomplish so many great things. Yes, there was a few little bitter pills that were stuck in there. I understand that, but I promise you that we're going to, those little bitter pills, we're going to solve those in the second session. We're going to come at them stronger and harder than ever. And um, I think that that's going to show us that we're that we are a party of principle right now. Even if not all of us are, there's enough of us that we are a party of principle. We're going to continue to do everything we can to maintain the platform and to pass only constitutional laws. Every, any, anytime we look at any bill, it has to be constitutional. If it doesn't pass constitutional muster, I don't even want to look at it. And, um, and I believe that because we're sticking for guns, we're actually giving people principles that's what people want to see is some principles uh, we're gonna we're gonna slaughter them in 2022 and we're gonna be able to build our ranks and and just uh, continue the momentum on this and keep new hampshire red excellent slaughter, slaughter was a figurative term i just want to emphasize i'm sorry say that again slaughter was a figurative term yes it was okay we reject all violence we have to say that every oh. day. Well, as you know, we ne we're never the ones that resort to the violence. You know, we may have all the weapons, but we we're very uh, we're very good with that. And we're we're to me, it's always safety, safety, safety. I've never pulled my weapon once in my life. Never had to. But it's funny that the Democrats are always the ones that resort to the violence first. They burn down the buildings. They trash. They loot. Uh, I've never seen Republicans doing that. So, and again, if anyone can prove me wrong, go ahead and prove me wrong. You are fantastic, and you have to come back on soon. 
Well, I will. I appreciate it, and I will come back anytime you'd like me to. Excellent. Thank you. I'll talk Thank to you. you very, very much.